welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Learn more about Cheaper and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough podcast at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Eczema Breakthroughs podcast. We're really thrilled to have with us today Professor Jesme Actis, who is a global leader in immunology specializing in allergic diseases. He is editor-in-chief of the highly respected journal Allergy, director of the Swiss Institute of Allergy and Asthma Research, and a professor at the University of Zurich Medical Faculty. Dr. Actis has published over 800 articles and been awarded numerous international prizes for his work. Dr. Actis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Corey. Well, let's start off by talking about this alarming trend in allergic diseases that we're seeing worldwide with a sharp increase since the 1960s. And we're all wondering why this is the case. And in fact, you've described it as an avalanche. So what are some reasons why we're seeing this dramatic change? The first allergic disease description was at the time of ancient Egypt. When we come to 1900s in Swiss army, there was 1% cases. But after 1960, a very steep increase started and we are seeing numbers in the Swiss population, 28%, in USA, 26%. So the numbers of allergic patients are currently around one-fourth of the world in average. That means there is around 2 billion patients, which is a very high number, of course. And this increase started around 1960s. First, it was realized in hospitals in the UK, New Zealand, Australia, that patients of Asthma were very much increasing in the hospital. And at that time, atopic dermatitis, asthma, and allergic rhinitis started to increase. And they doubled or tripled within the first 10 years. And currently, they have increased about 20 times. In around 2000, there was a second wave, which is food allergy, use of hecosophagitis, and drug allergy. So they started to increase after 2000s. And they are now significant because before they were less than 1%. But then we started to see peanut-induced anaphylaxis. And currently, food allergy is 5 to 9% in the world. So this increase is very, very steep. So what happened after 1960s to cause the global health crisis? One can understand from certain chemical inventories that shows 350,000 substances have been introduced to human lives with almost no control on their health effects after 1960s. This was a huge number. And many of them were not appropriately reported. 50,000 of them are publicly unknown because they are claimed to be patented. And 70,000 have been very ambiguously described. So what you're saying is that in the 1960s, there was this explosion in the introduction of chemical agents that we hadn't previously been exposed to. And we really don't know what the impacts are of thousands of them. We are talking about a major threat to humanity, like global warming and climate change. It is a global environment and health crisis which is taking place. It is not only in allergic diseases, it's also in neuropsychiatric diseases or autoimmune diseases. And we think that this is exposure to toxic substances, 
it is about climate change inside our body, actually. It is a major change related to epithelial barriers damage, microbial dysbiosis, and immune system activation. Thank you for that sort of sweeping overview. <laughs> really fascinating. Your theory and your research really get to that question of what happened to cause this to occur in our child, those of us with a child with a severe allergic condition. So we often hear about atopic dermatitis, allergy, and asthma, that they're genetic diseases. So how does your genetic risk interact with the exposures that you just mentioned? One or two percent explains the genetic background, but there is big change on exposure to environmental substances. And now we can bring this genetics concept and also environment concept together. So the genetics is how to respond to environment. And some people have problems. For this, we should understand the epithelial barriers. So epithelial barriers are of skin and mucosal surfaces, nose, sinuses, respiratory system, gastrointestinal system. So the epithelial barrier is meant to serve as a defense against the outside. Yes, there is barrier molecules that makes the epithelial barrier. And there are some genetics that control these epithelial barriers. For example, in the skin, we are talking about a group of molecules called filagrins. And if there is a mutation in these filagrins, these patients are more prone to develop atopic dermatitis. But only genetics doesn't explain because these diseases were not existing in very high prevalences before. Yeah, I think it's a really important point that genetics alone cannot explain the change that we're seeing, that likely it's some combination of genetics and environment that are at work here. Our research has shown us that there's some culprits that damage the epithelial barriers and microbiome. And in 19. 60, we started to increase exposure to shampoos and body cleaners, laundry and household cleaners. And exposure to these detergents was followed with a group of surfactants, sodium sulfate that are affecting our skin. I want to just interject for a quick second and repeat these names here. So we're talking about chemical surfactants one of which is called sodium lauryl sulfate. I just wanted to make sure our listeners were able to catch that. Then we have diesel exhaust, which started to increase a lot at that time. In addition, ozone increased and nanoparticles, microplastic and air pollution increased. Substances that cause inflammation in the respiratory area. And the third group is a change in our food. So we change to packaged food with additives, enzymes, and emulsifiers in processed food. These are also responsible for some gastrointestinal inflammatory or systemic diseases that are caused by damage of the epithelial barriers. So in the 1960s, first we started using laundry and household cleaners. Is that right? Yeah. And also introduced into the home household cleaners beyond laundry, shampoos and body cleaners, which we weren't using before that time. And they contain chemicals called surfactants. And then in the respiratory area, which also contains an epithelial barrier in our lungs, mouth and nose, it was affected by air pollution and things like ozone and microplastics and other materials that are emitted by cars and industrial processes. And those things are causing inflammation in the body. 
And then on top of it, we have processed and packaged food, which contains additives and enzymes, emulsifiers, impacting the epithelial barrier in the gut and cause systemic inflammation. Did I get that right? I just wanted to summarize for our audience a little bit. Yes. You talked a little bit about the ways in which these 350,000 chemicals that are now interacting with the human body can possibly explain the change that we're seeing. How are these chemicals getting into the body and causing trouble? And then once it gets in, how is it interacting with the epithelial barrier to maybe cause disease? Yeah. So around one third of the world population have an epithelial barrier problem. Their epithelial cells, which should not even pass water through, are leaky. And they are not so strong. And the epithelial cells cannot protect our body. And now air pollution, shampoos, household cleaners, body cleaners, and bacteria can go deeper in skin and respiratory mucosa. And they become inflammatory. So they start to respond to these agents together with their response to allergens then they start to recognize allergens as a dangerous substance. Before 1960s, we were tolerating allergens. Nowadays, we are not tolerating allergens. We are showing them an immune response against environmental proteins, mainly pollens or food antigens. So what happens with exposure to these chemicals is it's creating a leaky barrier where things can come in from the outside and penetrate into the body which it then identifies as an allergen and causes this inflammatory response. And the body was not reacting in that way before. And so therefore we have this allergic response. Is this a chicken and egg thing? Is the epithelial barrier compromised by these exposures and then this is happening? Or what triggers that in the first place? Why does one third of the world have a compromised epithelial barrier when it didn't in the first place? It's a very valid question. So we have really good answers to it using the models. We are making small organs. They are called organoids. And we have a skin or a lung or a sinus or a gut. And we are working with these organoids. And also we have animal mouse models. For example, if you put a few drops of sodium sulfate to the nose of mouse or to these organoids, then you can see that in mouse, asthma-like inflammation starts. And these organoids start to develop leakiness. So this is on a single exposure of a single substance. This gives us the impression that these substances are initiators of this response. But once this response starts, once inflammation starts, inflammation also starts to regulate the barriers and inflammation keeps the barriers open. So if there's a chronic disease in an organ, then the inflamed barriers are also open. So it happens in both ways. In the very beginning, the barriers are closed and they are opened by substances. But once they are open, when the inflammation starts and the disease starts, then they stay open so that they are exposed to other substances like allergens, toxins, pollutants that makes the disease worse. That's really fascinating. So you're able to create fake organs, which you can then test against these agents. And you can see that the chemical actually makes it less robust in blocking out things. And then once it has been compromised, the inflammatory process further degrades it and sort of keeps it in that state. So what you're saying is it both initiates it and maintains it that way. When we are exposed to these substances in high doses, we are very open to develop these inflammatory diseases like atopic dermatitis. There's a nice example. 
in 1970s in a production facility for detergent. There was an accident and the powder detergent has gone even to the offices of secretaries and it affected almost everyone in the facility, which was around 400 people working and 380 of them developed asthma. And none of them had asthma before, but if you are exposed to a high dose, then you develop the disease. Yeah, we can't really do an experiment where we expose people to potentially toxic chemicals. So we have to look at these accidental incidents. There are so many such examples. Currently, we have good evidence on operational diseases like cleaners eczema, cleaners rhinitis, and house cleaners asthma, because they are exposed to these substances in high doses. But these kind of diseases are still increasing. Recently, a very interesting paper was published in Allergy about detergents and sodium lauryl sulfate to cause eosinophilic esophagitis. And they have used organ-like tissues that I'm mentioning, and they also use mouse models. And it was shown that if they give the same doses to mouse, mouse develop very severe esophagitis, the same as what we are seeing in humans. So we are quite confident for the events that are taking place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so just to summarize, using this model that you have of organic tissue, you can expose it to a certain chemical. It causes what we would see in a human who has eosophagitis, which is inflammation of the esophagus. Is that right? Yes. Um, there's an allergic response in the esophagus. So we talked a little bit about laundry detergents and cleaners in the home. And you recently published an editorial, actually, in the Boston Globe, not in a research journal, but really for the general public, sounding the alarm also about dishwasher detergents, and especially rinse aids. Yeah, uh, we were worrying around two years ago, what could be the reason for this second wave, which started around 2000s? And we listed several substances that were introduced in our lives. And from these substances, professional dishwashers appeared as the number one. We were using household dishwashers since 1980s. But we then compared the household dishwashers with the professional dishwashers. Professional dishwashers bring out hundreds of well-cleaned and shining plates and glasses. So they are washing in one minute with 82 degrees temperature and four atmosphere pressure. And in the last 20 seconds, the rinse aid is added. And then at the end, the rinse aid stays on the glasses. And it is the same for many household dishwashers or softeners in laundry also. So we were interested in this and we tried to extract the rinse aid from the glasses. And we saw that a substance in the rinse aid called Alcohol etoxylates was highly toxic to human gastrointestinal epithelial cells. This rinseate appeared to be toxic in the dilutions of 20,000 times. So it's a very high dilution. And when we extracted the rinseate to culture from the glasses, some cells that we are using are dying. Why would dishwasher rinseate kill our cells? That was quite problematic. Then we saw that when we put the epithelial barriers into these cultures, it was breaking the barriers. We were measuring this very carefully. And then the barriers were broken. And then we understood that this alcohol etoxylate is the main culprit. And it also exists in household dishwashing sometimes. 
as part of the tablet. And so it appeared to be a toxic substance which was introduced to our lives in around 2000s. Currently, it is being used in hospitals, armies, in many restaurants. So it's something that uh, health authorities should think about. I'm so fascinated by your work because you're trying to find the culprit for these trends that we're seeing worldwide. And it could be anything. So I'm like amazed that you're able to zero in on these specific things like rinseid. How do you go about pinpointing what the potential culprits are? Because, you know, for us as a patient organization, we kind of make ourselves crazy trying to figure out the cause. And there's so many possible places you could look, given how quickly the world has changed in recent years. So just how do you approach this? In the beginning, we list the possible substances that can be responsible. And it ends up with 50 to 100 substances. And then we have screening systems. So in the organism, we can screen maybe 50 of these substances in one week. In the second week, we screen another 50, and then we screen up to 100, 200. And from these, some of them give us the first hint that they can be responsible for breaking the epithelial barriers. Afterwards, we focus on this substance or similar substances from the same family. We check how they are used in the life of humans, how we are exposed to them, and in which doses we are exposed to them. Once you catch one of the culprits of laundry detergents, check all the other ones in the laundry detergent. And it's not so difficult also for the dishwasher detergents or microplastic or food emulsifiers. Some chemicals which are not in a family is difficult, but we did some research in PFAS, for example. PFAS is now trying to be taken out of the usage of humans. We identified the toxicity of it. Many people showed the toxicity. Now the regulatory authorities are trying to take it out of the usage. So this is one, one and a half years of research of six, seven people. So it is not so easy. It needs a lot of funding and it needs a lot of time. So we can quickly screen, but afterwards the real research takes time. Yeah, there's a lot of working back that it seems like needs to happen to remove things that were added over time. Mm -hmm. It sounds like to me, it's not the thing that might be behind our allergic disease, especially our atopic dermatitis, but it's probably a bunch of things that taken together are agitating the epithelial barrier and pushing us over into an allergic state. So we talked about the cleaners, we talked about air pollution. Let's talk a little bit about food and these different additives. So our food has changed. The amount of packaged food usage has very substantially increased from 1960s on. Emulsifiers, preservatives, surfactants. These additives prevent the growth of fungi and bacteria and keep the water inside the packaged food to prevent the separation of the liquids. So this commercial aim has been successfully achieved about 20 years ago. The shelves of big supermarkets were always changed every week because the shelf life of food was not longer than seven days. Currently, the shelf life of many food is six months to one year. So this is all achieved. But to what cost is it achieved is a very major question. Currently, there's around 100 emissifiers used in the USA and Europe. We are continuously checking them and we are ready to publish a new paper which is about some ice cream and pastry additives, polysorbates, and they are quite toxic. We don't know directly the human toxicity, but mouse toxicity is very clear. There are so many papers that these emulsifiers make gut inflammation, open epithelial barriers, change microbiome. 
Thank you. I want to talk also about microplastics and how those might be also causing disruption in the body that could lead to some of these conditions. We have been introduced to microplastics about 20 years ago. It was said that the whales in the Pacific are having problems because microplastic is killing the plankton. And currently, microplastic can be found on the peaks of the Alps in many foods, in body fluids. So it's everywhere nowadays. We have a huge problem in every city for everyone and for all our babies because 8 billion tons plastic is produced per year and around 1 billion tons of microplastic goes to our lives. We have data about microplastic ingested by cells. It changes the immune responses. It can open the epithelial barriers and it can bind the receptors of certain cells. And it is one of the main agents that we are continuously being exposed to that changes the cellular metabolism, cellular activation, and causes inflammation. Thank you. Yeah, I think what I take away from our discussion in part is there's all these toxic chemicals that were never meant to be in the human body, and our body does not know what to do with it. It's overreacting. And those chemicals are coming in through our food, the air, from water, and through our households, through the products that we use. And so our bodies are being overloaded by these things, and that is creating havoc internally. As a parent of a child with an allergic condition, like I'm sitting here thinking, what can I do about this to protect children in my community? And I'm going through the list, and it's like, I live really close to the highway, so there's air pollution exposure. And yesterday I was down at the beach and I was shocked by how much plastic was there. So in some ways it feels like it's everywhere and you sort of don't know where to start. So maybe we could talk a little bit about solutions and what we can do as individuals and as a community to start to limit exposure to some of these things. The first thing is avoidance of all of the above mentioned products. So we should decrease the exposure below the toxic doses. That's technically possible for demulsifiers, packaged food, very easy. For air pollution, it's difficult. It's not controllable. And then air cleaners should be used a lot. Then there's hot dust mite at home. And at the same time, there's air pollution outside. And at the same time, you are feeding your child with a packaged food which has emulsifiers. These substances have additive effects. One should fully avoid this. And for the industry, there's a responsibility of development of safer, less toxic products. And the regulatory authorities should certainly control these, say that these doses are toxic. Then we have to discover biomarkers for research. That's very important to identify barrier leaky subjects. We are working on this. One of the drugs which we are currently using for asthma, for example, closes the epithelial barriers. We were very happy to see this. But the most important thing is to increase the education. My first suggestion to families is to learn reading the packages. They have to get used to reading the packages of the food, cosmetics and cleaners, and then they have to try to decrease the exposure as much as possible. There are certain detergents that can be equally efficient if they are used 10 times less. So it's possible to dilute these. And also, instead of packaged food, when you go to supermarket, you turn to the fruits and vegetables. Then make your own healthy food from the vegetables, increase the fiber intake, increase health fruit intake. So these are all doable things in a normal daily life. And for microplastic, opening of big packages at home releases a lot of microplastic. You have to do this outside the house and bring in the material that you are opening without the package. 
not to increase the microplastic in the house. So many things can be done and it's relatively easy to find ways to do them. But the responsibility of regulatory authorities, how much to add these toxic substances to which food? So if you can decrease the doses below the toxicity, then you can achieve good quality food. That's technically possible. And as I said, a substance is not toxic. The dose is toxic. Yeah, great. Really actionable stuff. I appreciate that. And if you're having small exposures to these things, your body may be able to handle it. But as you say, if it's this additive effect of you actually are exposed to allergens, plus you're getting it in your food, your rinse, microplastics, et cetera, it becomes a threshold that perhaps we can't deal with. So uh, yeah, re- reducing cumulative exposure does seem like a really important point. Last question was, what are you working on now? Where are you taking this research? So we want to heal the barriers and we are trying to look at these compounds and to identify healing compounds. And we are working on a biomarker discovery and we have a big pipeline. We are planning to publish an important paper that will change the life and to uh, make it known to regulatory authorities at the end of the day that the regulatory authorities, for example, FDA, take over the responsibility and checks it, uh, gives out grants to improve the uh, quality of life. We are very satisfied and we are very happy what we have done in the last five years, but our research started about 24 years ago. It wasn't so easy in the beginning to bring these concepts to this level. But from now on, I I feel that it is also like the avalanche of healing, not the avalanche of polluting, but the avalanche of healing is starting. I think it's wonderful that you're looking at it from so many different angles. I mean, ideally, we figure out how to prevent these allergic conditions, but also coming up with treatments for those who have already developed them is an important angle to appreciate the ambition of your research and the expansiveness, which is exactly what we need in this field right now to start to answer these big questions rather than just reacting to it, but really getting to the root causes. So it was fantastic. Thank you for the interview, for the work that you're doing and for being on the podcast today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. To learn more and join Global Parents for Eczema Research or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. And if you enjoy our podcast, consider supporting it with a tax-deductible donation through our website. We depend on listeners like you to keep producing high-quality, science-based episodes. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. Thank you.